Well, who among us is ready to get into the Word of God this morning? Would you shout amen uh, today? Amen. Take your Bible. I should like to call your attention this morning once again to the first chapter of the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, as we have been trying to train everyone to do. If you're not sure where Jonah is, open your Bible right to the very middle and you'll likely fall into Psalms, Proverbs, or Isaiah, Jeremiah, somewhere around in there. Hang a right and keep coming through the big beefy prophets and eventually you will come to the short, very short, 48 verses long in four chapters, the little book of Jonah. Good morning to those of you that are worshiping with us in our online community. Good morning to those of you over at the Spanish Trail campus. In fact, let's put our hands together and welcome everybody into the house of the Lord this morning at both campuses. Everybody celebrate right along with us. We are so delighted. And a special congratulations to those of you over at the Spanish Trail Campus who are being recognized as high school graduates this morning. I know we've got at least a couple over there, I think. And we are so proud of you and proud of your families. And we'll be celebrating here at the Nine Mile Campus uh, today as well. As we uh, come to Jonah chapter 1, again, after a brief hiatus for Mother's Day, Uh, We're reminded that Jonah, of course, is a reluctant prophet. He's a reluctant missionary preacher of the gospel. Hadn't always been reluctant as long as it was a calling from God to people that he was comfortable with, to places he was comfortable with, as long as it kept him in his comfort zone. He was never apparently reluctant about following the Lord. But when God called him out of his comfort zones to people in places that he did not like, when God called him to do a hard thing in a hard place, he became reluctant and he turned and ran from God. He did that because he was angry with God. He did that because he was angry with the people that he was called to go and preach the gospel to. He did that because he was fearful of the circumstances. He did it primarily because he was selfish. He wanted to obey God in selective kinds of ways that pleased Jonah. When God said, go east, young man, Jonah responded by saying no. When God said go, turned the opposite direction and started heading as far west as he could possibly go. He hops a ship at the port of Joppa there in modern-day Israel, a ship bound for the farthest port of call known to man at that time, the southern coast of Spain to a little village known as Tarshish. That was the end of the earth as far as the people of that day and that place knew it. But as we should know by now, our Lord uh, does not tolerate disobedience. He had no intention of letting Jonah go his own way, do his own thing. And in order to bring that reluctant prophet back into the center square of the will of God, he sends a storm. The Bible says literally throws it. He hurls a wind, hurling a storm in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. And that, of course, causes a panic on board, even among these seasoned Phoenician sailors, pagan sailors. But Phoenicians were seafaring people for generations and generations. And they were the saltiest, most professional sailors uh, in the entire world, and it scared them to death. They'd never seen a storm like the one that was hurled on them 
that day and everybody's scurrying. They're throwing cargo overboard. Everybody's concerned. They're all concerned about life and limb. Everybody's concerned except for one person on board and whose name is that? Jonah, that's right. Totally oblivious, totally depressed, totally discouraged, dead to God. Can I just say this morning, you'll never find joy outside of the will of God. There is no joy apart from obedience to God. There is no joy in charting your own course, going your own way. And while everybody on deck is scurrying, trying to figure out a way to save the ship and to save their lives, the prophet of God, the man of God, is down in the hold of the ship in as dark a place as it could be, totally oblivious to what was going on, sound asleep in the belly of the ship. Now, what happens next is vitally important for two reasons, ethical reasons and theological reasons, as we're going to see in this lesson today. And it helps us, I think, better understand why Jonah's running in the first place and why this fugitive from God ends up a total castaway in the end. Jonah's is not a positive example. In fact, it's a rather sorry example, of truth be told, but there are even in his sorry example, uh, a couple of very important lessons that I think we need to learn. The first one that I want us to take note of is this. The example of Jonah, first of all, reveals what I would call the priority of love. Now, most of us who've walked with the Lord in here for any uh, reasonable amount of time know the supremacy of love in the gospel and the supremacy of love in the Christian life. God is love. And God expects us to love one another. That's just all over the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says the greatest of these is love. This is, as he describes it, the most excellent way. And one of the things that you see in the life of Jonah is an absence of that. And the absence of that helps us to better understand when we interpret Jonah in light of the clear teaching of the whole counsel of God the primacy of love and the importance of love and what it looks like when that love is missing from a believer's heart. Look with me beginning in verse number seven. And they said to one another, the sailors, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. <clears throat> now, for our purposes today, I want us to focus on the way Jonah identifies himself when the sailors start to pepper him uh, with questions about his identity and questions about his spiritual life. You see, they, their most pressing mission, and don't miss the context, wind is blowing, rain's blowing sideways, that little ship is bobbing up and down on these massive waves, and, and they, they have a mission, and their most pressing mission is to figure out and understand 
whose God has been offended that's brought this kind of storm, the likes of which they had never seen, so that they can figure out what to do in order to potentially stop it. And having no real way to do that, having exhausted all possibilities trying to figure out who on board has offended God so much or their God so much that uh, they need to be identified to determine how to placate that God. They didn't know how to do that. And so they resort to kind of a game of chance. They cast lots, simply two stones, painted white on one side, black on the other. And the goal was you'd call somebody's name, cast the two lots, And if it was a mixed color or all black, it wasn't the guy. And they did that for everybody on board, supposedly. And then when they called this guy down in the belly, the guy in the belly of the ship, and they cast the lot two white side up. And they had their man figured out. Now, can I just say I don't have time to track this out. I don't recommend games of chance to determine the will of God. Although that's how the replacement of Judas was figured out. And uh, you'll have to come visit me in my office and I'll tell you exactly what I think about that. But for our purposes today, the important thing is to realize that God even can use this crazy way in order to get his guy where he wanted him to be. And so he uses this to identify the guilty culprit to these sailors and in the midst of the wind and rain they begin to probe in order to figure out who is this masked man and it's interesting that as Jonah begins to answer their questions he shapes his identity first and foremost watch this please he shapes his identity around his race what's the first thing that he says I am a what Hebrew in other words I'm a Jew that's who I am you want to know who I am First and foremost, I'm a Jew. And it's interesting to me that it begins with that first rather than with any particular identifier that connects him directly with God overtly. Now, I'd imagine most of us would probably do similar kinds of things when we were introduced to a stranger. If someone, if you're traveling in another country and somebody asks you questions about your identity, you'd probably be more like Jonah And so would I. Most of us, by the way, see our identity in layers. Somebody brought me, one of our blessed Hillcrest members, a big old bag of Vidalia onions this past week. And I left them for a day, not knowing it, in the back seat of the car. And I don't have to tell you what happened the next morning when I got in the car. Uh, But those onions are just layers. There's you know, you peel back one after another. And that's kind of us. I mean, we we identify ourselves in layers. Um, where we're from, where we live, what we do for a living, size and scope of our family, things that we enjoy doing for fun, avocations. And when someone you don't know asks you to tell them a little bit about yourself, how many of you actually say right out of the gate, you want to know something about me? I am a born again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's probably not what you say first, though it probably should be. See, that's what happens with Jonah. More likely, you'd say, well, I'm from the United States of America. Well, I live in Florida, right? Or you'd say, well, I'm married, been married for 33 years and got two kids, just graduated the last of them. Or you'd say, I work in sales for Procter & Gamble, or I'm a public school teacher. I know some people in the house today, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, tell me a little bit about yourself, first thing you'd say is, roll tide. 
right? That'd be the first thing you said. And you'd reveal that you have a serious problem, you know, basically. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's a joke. Hey, but that would be true if you said War Eagle or Go Gators. If that were the first thing you said about yourself, this is what I want you to know about me more than anything else in life. No. And that's the way it is with Jonah. You see, how you respond to those kind of questions reveals a whole lot about how you see yourself and what's really important to you in life. And that was true about Jonah. Now, we already know, based on what's said about Jonah in chapter 1 and chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, that he's on the run from God largely because he's what John Piper called a racist hyper-nationalist. And indeed he was. Jonah's running because he hated another group of people. He hated the Ninevites. And the last thing he wanted was to see God save the first one of them. He wanted God to judge them. And so when loyalty to his nation, loyalty to his people, loyalty to his kind superseded and conflicted with loyalty to the word of God and loyalty to the will of God, Jonah chose the national interest over the interest of the kingdom. And when God said, go east, he said, no, thank you. And he turned and went the other way. Can I just say that for those of us who've been saved by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the most important part of our identity is not our country, it's not our people, it's not our race, it's not our work, it's not our family. The most significant part of our identity is our identity in the person of Jesus Christ. The critical part of our identity is the supreme statement that the Apostle Paul makes in the book of Colossians, Christ in me. That's who I am fundamentally. It's why Jesus said, seek ye first the what? Kingdom of God. That's what he said. And if you ever forget that, the first thing that'll happen to you is you'll start to drift way off course spiritually as it relates to your mission as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in your notes, but listen to 2 Corinthians 5.14. I think we have it on the screen. For the love of Christ controls us. There it is. That's what Jonah missed right there. Everybody see it? Say amen. He was not controlled by the love of Christ. He was controlled by love of country. The love of Christ compels us. And I'm not saying you shouldn't love your country. I've got an American flag in my office downstairs and one in my study at home. Everybody with me say amen. I'm talking about matters of critical importance as it relates to priority. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, it's that concept that Jonah missed. And in his response to the sailors, it's interesting that he claims to have a fear of God. The next thing that he says after he says, I am a Hebrew, he says, I fear the Lord, creator of heaven and earth. I don't think all that much. No, not really. He's running away from him. He doesn't fear him that much. You see, his response to the call of God 
does not indicate that the chief orienting principle of his life was the fear of God, which it ought to have been. The chief orienting principle of his life was love of his race, love of the nation. And that created a sense of superiority in Jonah, didn't it? He felt better than everybody else, at least in part, because it led him to reject others who were not like him. Everybody tracking with me this morning? Amen? You see, this is still a problem in our culture today. It's never gone away. The world is broken. Probably until Jesus comes again, it's never going to go away completely. But that doesn't mean we ought not pursue it. Amen. Sociologists call this othering, othering where we isolate people different from us and keep them at a distance because we're uncomfortable with them or we don't like them. And everywhere I've been in the world, just about every race, every tongue, every tribe, every ethnic background are prone to do it. It's not just a problem here, it's a problem all over the world. And we need to move past that in order to live in ways that are pleasing to God as kingdom people with a kingdom mindset focused around kingdom priorities, namely the gospel mission that we're called to achieve. I was in northern Iraq many years ago in the Kurdish region, and we were doing a pastor's conference there, and one day we had some free time, and we went down into the heart of the big city there that we were in into the marketplace, all these kiosks and wonderful foods and fabrics and clothing and trinkets and spices and just teeming with people, teeming with people. It's like the whole town was there. And there were three of us, Ken Bell was one of them, Brian Barlow and myself, and we had an Iraqi pastor, maybe a couple of them actually with us. And you know what I remember? We were walking through all of that, and at one point, it just occurred to me, we were the only three white people there. There ain't no white man there. We were it. And everybody knew it. And it was interesting. We'd turn a corner, and everybody just stopped. And they would literally follow us, eyeball. It was like many of them had never seen a white man before, and I know that they had But, man, we ran into all of that. And I remember how strange that made me feel, how intimidated that made me. And the Lord has used that to remind me that's how a lot of people feel when they're different and they're not in a majority. Intimidated, fearful. We were inside that big bazaar at one point, and these three brown-skinned Kurdish Iraqis I'd say three, there was probably six or eight of them, came walking right toward where we were and their eyes were fixed on us and they came right up and I began to get jittery and I thought, oh God, I was praying under my breath. What's gonna happen? What do they want? And the guy raised his hand and pointed at me like that and I thought, what's getting ready to happen? What's getting ready to go down? And the guy came up to me and said, hey, did you go to Vandy? I was wearing a Vanderbilt University windbreaker that had the logo on it I mean I'm on the other side of the world and I said yes I did he said man I live in Nashville I was born there we love going to those basketball games I mean I nearly passed out you remember that 
I had the loveliest visit with that guy. He was just as American as apple pie. And he said, you know what? I got so many families still over here. I can't even count. We come over from time to time and visit with them. I learned two things that day. I learned how different I was. And I learned how small the world has become. And I also learned how important it is that we all learn to love each other in the love of Christ. And that's what Jonah needed to learn as much as anything else. I mean, the reason why the first layer of identity should always be measured in Christ is because every person, though every person may not today be a child of God, every person on this planet is created by God. Every person is born in the image of God. Regardless of race, they live in the image of God they're loved unconditionally by God. Every person is an eternal being who's going to live forever somewhere. Everybody's going to live forever somewhere. And we need to care about that, regardless of the color of the skin, regardless of what kind of flag that they fly. And for those reasons, man, there is just no room for any kind of identity superiority in the kingdom of God. Galatians 3.28 there is neither, in fact, let's read this one out loud together. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all in Christ Jesus. You're all what? All one in Jesus Christ. See, the early church got that. You remember that church at Antioch we studied about in the book of Acts? Man, they were made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation imaginable in that very cosmopolitan city and it's so important that we get it too because that's the way it's going to be in heaven if you don't like a mixed multitude here you're probably not going to enjoy heaven very much because the apostle john was given a vision of heaven we call it the book of revelation right and notice what he reveals in revelation 7 verse 9 behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, this is, this is, Jonah, this is what Jonah still has yet to understand. He's on the run because he feels superior. And his superiority just will not allow him to see others through a heavenly lens of love and mercy and grace. And that's part of the reason why God's not gonna let him go. So is everybody with me so far? The example of Jonah, in kind of a twisted way, helps us to understand the priority of love in every believer's life. But then there's another thing, and this is a little more theological, namely that the example of Jonah reveals the necessity of sacrifice from every believer's life. The priority of love from believers to all people the necessity of sacrifice on behalf of God's people 
for those in need. Look what happens beginning in verse 11. Then they said to Jonah, what then shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Now, that's the name Yahweh. They're crying out to Jonah's God here, which I think is just absolutely fascinating and fantastic. Because now they've identified the God that's brought the storm and they're willing to submit themselves to Jonah's God. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. That word hurl is the same word used by God for hurling the storm. God hurls the storm, the sailors hurl Jonah, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, armed with information about who's responsible for the storm, the sailors are left in a quandary as to what to do. Now, Jonah knows he's to blame, and he tells the sailors, here's the prescription, here's the solution, cast me overboard. Now, there's really no hint of repentance here. Many, and scholars are divided, many people want to know, well, what's going on in Jonah's life? Does he realize at this point that he's outside of the will of God? And I don't think there's a hint of repentance in Jonah's heart here. I think Jonah's just wanting to die and get away from it all. The repentance doesn't come later until the book of Jonah. It will come, but not until much later. So I think this is just an act of despair where Jonah comes to the point where he realizes he's done in, he can't run from God, he's never gonna be able to get to Tarshish to begin with. So much for the life of basket weaving on the seashore. It's not gonna happen. But rather than just let God change his heart toward his enemies rather than submit himself to God and let God do a new work of transformation in his life. He's just determined he'd rather die than follow the will of God. He'd rather die than preach the gospel. He'd rather die than give testimony that could possibly lead to people that he did not like coming to worship the same God that he had come to know and love. And that's how deeply ingrained a biased prejudiced spirit can be. Jonah had rather die in his stubbornness than to surrender God's best for his life. Y'all ever known anybody like that? They'd rather just keep running from God, going their own way, than to surrender and receive the very best that God has for them. I've known a lot of people like that in my life. They'd rather go their own way, even if it means ruining their own life, than to bend the knee in submission to God and allow his grace to change them and to transform them. 
So Jonah says, just throw me overboard and let's be done with it. Maybe I'll find some peace and you surely will too. But the sailors initially anyway, having none of it, and they're pagans, by the way, they seem to have this instinctive thing. If we throw them, him overboard, we'll just be murdering him. These are pagan people and they have this instinctive appreciation, it seems to me, for life. More of us respect for life, frankly, than Jonah does. And so they begin to row against the wind. They try to beat the wind in order, they know they got to get him off the boat, but let's try to find a port, let's try to find land somewhere that we can get him close to so maybe he can survive. But it's no good. As the old preacher used to say, their arms were too short to box with God. Amen. It seemed the harder they rode, the harder the wind blowed, the more aggressive blew, the more aggressive the waves became until they realized we're all going to die unless we do something. And it's at that point they picked the cowardly Jonah up and they tossed him overboard. And of course, when they did, The wind instantly stopped. The waves instantly ceased. And in the ultimate twist of all, the pagan sailors end up getting saved. Somebody say amen. See, the Bible says here, Jonah identifies himself as someone who fears the Lord, but we don't buy it. And yet here, it's said also of the sailors, and we do buy it. They offer sacrifice to God. They worship the Lord. And how ironic is that? I mean, Jonah's on the run to keep from preaching grace to Gentiles, and Gentiles end up getting saved anyway. That's a good place for an amen. God's going to do his work whether we cooperate or not. And that's why we call it amazing grace, right? And again, it's not a perfect example, but let me just say as we wrap up this morning, one of the takeaways here is the necessity of sacrifice as a means of finding God and as a means of connecting to God. Jonah was sacrificed, the sailors found God. Things became peaceful at that point and they worship the Lord. So there's some images here in this account in Jonah chapter one, then in many ways kind of foreshadow the work of Christ on the cross. I mean, think about it. Those on board the ship were in a storm and they were under a death sentence. The wrath of God was moving among them. The wrath of God, of course, being God's holy anger that's directed against sin and rebellion. There was an offender and the offender was offered in sacrifice. And once the offender was offered in sacrifice, God's anger subsided, and what was the result? The end result was reconciliation, forgiveness, and connection with God. Can I just ask this morning, any of that sound familiar from the New Testament? That's like what we call the gospel. That's the very gospel of Christ. The Bible teaches all have what? Sinned and shall uh, fall short of the glory of God, right? And what does that arouse in God? It arouses the wrath of God because God is holy and cannot tolerate sin, won't wink at it, won't take it lightly. God in his holiness must judge sin and so we're all under the wrath of God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all under a death sentence because of it. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
you and I should have been the ones tossed into the storm because we were the sinners who deserved judgment, but because of incredible love and grace on the part of God, he sent a substitute to get tossed into the storm for us, whose name was Jesus Christ. And through the cross and our faith in the person and work of cross, when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the storm ceases, the waves cease to blow, there is peace and calm, and now we are forgiven of our sin and connected in a vital relationship with God, which the Bible calls reconciliation. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's our greatest treasure. Reconciliation through a sacrificial substitute. Everybody tracking with me? And this is why the Bible says, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, therefore, having been justified, saved by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jonah was sacrificed to save the sailors, so Jesus was sacrificed to save you and me. And this ought to become a pattern for God's people because God has paid such a great sacrifice for our connection to him because God has demonstrated eternal love in the gift of his son. We are obligated to love all people and because God has demonstrated sacrifice through the work of his son, we're obligated to live sacrificial lives of humble service so that others might be blessed. And it's what we're all to do. It's what husbands are called to do for their wives. It's what wives are called to do for their husbands. It's what parents are called to do for their children. It's what children are called to do for their parents. It's what friends are called to do for one another. It's what kingdom citizens are called to do to unbelievers and to outsiders. To live sacrificially is to be like Christ. You do it every time you choose to overlook an offense rather than to seek revenge. That's sacrifice. You do it every time you choose to forgive when you've been deeply hurt. That's sacrifice. You do it every time you meet a genuine need in someone else's life out of your own resources. That's sacrifice. Every time you stay by the bedside of somebody who's sick and dying. You do it every time you share the gospel with someone who's lost and far from God. Every time you lower yourself and swallow your pride so that somebody else can be blessed and lifted up, encouraged. Whenever you decrease in order that someone else might increase, you demonstrate sacrifice, which, brothers and sisters, is the very heart of the gospel. We learn this in kind of a backward way from Jonah. But the truth is still the same. Nothing is more important than loving others. And genuine love is always proven by a life 
of willing sacrifice on behalf of others. How much do we at Hillcrest look, act, and respond like the Lord Jesus Christ? This is God's eternal word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.